Good morning, church. We, uh, we're going to be in uh, the book of Micah, chapter 6. That's, uh, your, that's your only warning for the rest of the verses that I'm going to go through. So uh, I would just say, get to Micah. We're going to be in chapter 6. We'll be going over verses 1 through 8. Um, uh, I just want to say that, I guess in return to what, what Pastor said, that it's such a blessing you know, to just have the opportunity to, to come here, to be stretched out in what I believe what God has called uh, my wife and I to, which is a pastor-teacher role in the church. Um, I think often you end up in that role and you don't have a lot of experience, and so I'm very grateful that Pastor lets me practice on you guys, <laughs> and I ask for your, uh, your mercy as I go through this, and, and really just as I learn how to expound and teach what God said in a way that's effective uh, for you as hearers, but also um, that I would do a good job in teaching what he said. That's part of why I want to go to, or why we are going to North Carolina to finish the Masters of Divinity. And that it generally... What that entails is me learning Hebrew and Greek so I can look to the original manuscripts and as I teach, that, I, that when I come down or when I'm done, that I can say that I, teach, I taught what God said. And that's become very important to me in my life when I was a younger believer and I had opportunities to teach like this. I, I didn't have nearly the high view of Scripture that I have now. And... Um, I remember I told the story uh, earlier today, but when I first uh, was accepted into the West Institute, that's the seminary that's here in this church, I met a young man named Jonathan Payne. Uh, he was up here playing keyboards here this morning, and, and I asked him, well, what's your plans? And he said, well, I'm going to go on and get the Master's of Divinity. And I said, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> what is that? So he went on to tell me, he said, my, my hope is to be able to someday have the Greek uh, New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament and just teach out of that. And I remember thinking in my heart, that's ridiculous. <laughs> are you crazy? So uh, here we are, headed to North Carolina to learn Greek and Hebrew. And I'm excited to do that. During my studies, I, I came across and had to uh, uh, read and write on uh, one of America's, if not America's greatest theologians and pastors, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, his his idea of what, his understanding of when he got done and he came down from the pulpit, he said that if anybody was mad at him, he was that it wasn't him, that they were mad at God. In other words, he had so well studied to teach God's word that he taught God's word. And if you're mad, it's your own fault and you're mad at God. Now, I'm not there, um, but I desire to be there. And in that... Uh, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going through notes today. I hope that's not too distracting for you. But I've not yet come to a place where I feel like I can do what Jonathan Edwards said without referring to, to making sure that that's the case. So don't let that be a distraction. I'm not going to apologize because my desire is to teach you what God said. Amen. So hopefully that gave you enough time to get to Malachi, or Micah, excuse me, chapter 6. We're going to read through it. Uh, Sean, 
uh, one of the elders here at the church came to me afterwards, and, and he said, uh, said a couple things to me that I, that I just thought were really important. Um, as we read Micah 6 and, and uh, 1 through 7 is really a remembrance, uh, and 8 is then, it's a call to action. And today we're going to look at uh, verse 8, and we're going to, that's really where we're going to spend our time. We're going to take a little time to get there. Um, but uh, it's throughout, a consistent message throughout the Old Testament that God is calling his people to remember how great that he was. And I want us as believers uh, in Jesus Christ to always be remembering that God called you out of darkness and brought you into light. That is, if you are a regenerated, born-again believer. And that we're always to be remembering what God uh, has done for us that we might worship properly, that we might do things correctly, that I don't, I don't do things religiously just to do them, which we're going to see a lot of that today. God, what's God's command for us to live? What kind of life? But I don't do that to just do it. I do that because I remember what God has done for me. Amen? So I'll read it to you here. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. That should, that should have been a, a, a fearful sentence. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him? This is Micah speaking. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you this morning, um, Lord, Lord, humbly. And for, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to speak your word uh, with boldness, Lord, not because I am great, Lord, but because you are great. Lord, I pray that uh, I would be attentive uh, to what it is that you're saying to me as I work through this message. Lord, I pray for the people that we don't walk out of this building the same people that we were. Lord, that we are cut to the heart as iron sharpens iron, Lord. That you would change our lives and we would walk out different people today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to draw your attention first to a couple things. I'll have a slide put up here in front of you. That's a picture of the, obviously of the Middle East there, if you're not, uh, not aware of it. Um, 
um, which I'm sure you are, but uh, Egypt here, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, all of uh, Asia Minor and Asia, uh, of course over here is uh, Rome and Italy and, and whatnot, Ephesus where Paul spent a tremendous amount of time, Corinth right here, but what I want you to pay attention to is right here, this little tiny country called Israel. As we study the Old Testament, it's really important for us to understand the geography of where God placed Israel. It's really, really strategic in His heart to reach the nations. Often we hear Israel called God's people, and they are. But they were God's people unto what? Attracting people unto the Lord. And as you can see geographically, nobody comes from here because this is all completely and totally arid desert. Nothing lives out here. Tons of people here. This is Egypt, which is the breadbasket of the world, especially in these days. And then lots of people all the way up and through uh, this area. This is the Fertile Crescent. Babylon would have been over here. This is where Abraham came from, walked up and down. And ultimately, the family ends up in Egypt here. Now, what's my point? My point is this, that God gives them this nation, Israel, as an inheritance that as the nations do their trading, right? They didn't hop on a plane. They didn't send it by boat, although there were boats. Mostly, it was done by roads. There's an international highway that runs right up the coast of Israel. It goes, it hops over and hits the edge of uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And all of that traffic funnels through there. And so Israel became a very wealthy nation because of where it was strategically placed. Now, not only was it wealthy because they could tax, whoever was in, in government could tax at that choke point, um, but it was a nation that was set up that, that as people traveled, um, they would experience and see the one true God. So I want us to take that, that idea that God's desire was always to have Israel, his people, to be a light unto the nations. So secondly, and I'll take a little more time to, um, to expound on this because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. I had a lot of confusion in my own heart and life about it. So I want to take just a little time. And both of these things I want to pull into Micah as we learn what he is saying and what God's heart is for people. So while I was in seminary, um, I found occasion to get coffee, as I often do. And I uh, was hanging out with a friend, and they uh, had asked me, they said, well, what are, you, uh, what are you studying right now? And I said, well, you know, with, with great enthusiasm, I was like, man, we're studying the Old Testament. And they kind of looked at me and cocked their head. And I'm like, man, when are you going to get to the good stuff? And uh, I want to say that, honestly, for a long time, that was my opinion of the Old Testament. It was like, it was old, right? I don't need that. that that's passed away. It's, it's gone. That, right? Jesus fulfilled that which is in the Old Testament. And I do not want you to come out of here with the idea that that is the case because it, is, it couldn't be further from the case. So my hope today as we take a look at these verses in Micah and the Old Testament that you re-lens yourself if you need to is how, how we bring, how we read, how we study the Old Testament and how we see God's heart for the nations all throughout. So um, let's take a look at what uh, Jesus' um, opinion of the Old Testament was. Of course, that's all they had, right? Sometimes we forget that. 
They weren't packing around Paul's epistles, right? Nothing had been written. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. Um, the setting is the Sermon on the Mount. It's late in Jesus' Galilean ministry, sometime around the two-and-a-half-year mark. Uh, there are thousands of people here. If you go to Israel, you will get to go to where they're fairly certain that this happened. It's kind of a natural amphitheater. And uh, now, according to Dr. Bookman back in the day, you could actually go down and set up and you could set people up on the hillsides and then he would go down and just speak in a normal voice. If you've been around Dr. Bookman, I don't know how normal his voice is. It's fairly loud. But he said that he could speak in his normal voice and the people at the very highest part of this amphitheater could hear very clearly what it was that he was saying. So that's the setting. You've got thousands of people disciples of Christ, you have the 11 apostles or 12 apostles at that time, and then you have the Pharisees and scribes sitting there. And Jesus, coming to the end of this ministry, says this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, he's going to clarify this word fulfill here. In Matthew especially, uses this word fulfill, and you have to be very careful because it's not it's not, it's done. The word is, he brings more light to. We're further down the road in the revelation of how God is going to bring the end times to come. So fulfill, it's a, it, it's a, it's a catchy word. Sometime do the study and watch how Matthew uses that word. And if you just slow down and look at it, you're like, well, that can't be. It's not fulfilled. So, so here we go. I did not come to destroy, to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... One jot, which is the smallest Hebrew letter in the alphabet, and one tittle, which is the smallest stroke of the smallest letter, will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever who does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Now, a common misconception that I know that I had and many have about the Old Testament is that the practicing of the law or the Torah was what saved men in that day. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. I never had the thought. I guess it shows you how shallow I am. I never had the thought until I went to seminary to think, how did the Old Testament person get saved? How were they, <laughs> how were they brought into righteousness? Hmm. So, um, I want to talk about that a little bit because we need to bring that into Micah. The term saved, we need to understand and ask ourselves, what does it mean? What does saved mean from? We use that language. It's really not biblical language. Um, righteousness, justice, justified. Those are the, that is the words and the language that the Bible used to talk about God bringing us into a right relationship with Him. Um, so, as for the idea that the law saves, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, again, Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. At this point, the people's jaws literally must have dropped, hit on the rocks, and their teeth must have fell out. Because the idea, even at that time, was that the closer you followed the law, the more saved you were. 
the better you were. Um, the Pharisees were the common people's religious heroes. If anyone was righteous, that is, according to the misguided thinking that the law saved people, it would have been the first century scribe and Pharisee. But what did Jesus say? That unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, following the letter of the Levitical law never saved anyone. The word righteousness here means justified. It's a legal term that means the books have been balanced. Most of you, if uh, you've been around for very long, I guess some of, some, there's some kids in here or whatnot that haven't experienced this, but probably will. Unless you're extremely wealthy and can just write a check for everything that you want, you will have a loan in your life. And in that loan, somebody holds the title or the deed to the property or that which you have, the bank that is, until you make your last payment. And the word justified or righteous here is that word. It's you wrote the last check. You got in the mail the, the, that wonderful envelope that uh, says... Here's your car. You now are owner. Until then, you're just a borrower like me. <laughs> but the term justified, when you read it, the term righteousness as we see it here and what Jesus is talking about, he is leaving no room for that. Your righteousness, right, is as filthy rags, the Apostle Paul says. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You are utterly and totally unable to earn salvation. The Apostle Paul taught about this in his letter to the Galatians. Everywhere Paul went and taught, Orthodox Jews would follow him up and attempt to unsay everything Paul taught concerning Jesus' fulfilling the atonement for sin prescribed in the Levitical law. In Galatians 3.11, Paul writes this, but that no one is justified, that is made righteous, by the law, in sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That is, they will live in eternity. The just will live in eternity by faith. Of course, your question should be, faith in what? Well, Paul gives that answer. That answer, Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, to Abraham and his seed, that's capitalized and singular, S, seed, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many. In other words, not to the nation of Israel, but as one and to your seed who is Christ. So the common misconception of the time was that we're Abraham's children. So, right? We're in. Nope, that's not what Paul's saying, is it? It doesn't say to seeds, his family. It says to the seed, so the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? The seed. Just as Abraham was made righteous or justified because of his faith in the seed, the man to come, which is Christ Jesus. Therefore, the just or the righteous shall be saved from God's judgment of their sin by their faith in the promised seed of Abraham. Both New and Old Testament saints are saved from God's judgment in the same manner. That is, faith in the seed the Old Testament saint is looking forward, and the New Testament saint is looking backward. Both are putting their faith in the promise that God made to Abraham. Therefore, the only thing old about the Old Testament 
is proclaimed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 1 through 4. It's important for us to understand there's many sacrifices in the Old Testament, but the sacrifice of sacrifice is found uh, instituted in Leviticus chapter 16, done in Leviticus chapter 17, and it's, it's the, uh, the atonement or the day of atonement. Uh, it's called Yom Kippur today. So as the, as the writer of Hebrews here is talking about this, this is the sin, this is the sacrifice, excuse me, that he's speaking of, is Yom Kippur. You'll see that because it says year after year. Every year, the most holy of holidays in Israel is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement where God forgave the sins of the nation. So therefore, as I said, the only thing old about the Old Testament is proclaimed in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. You cannot become perfect. By the Levitical law. The law cannot save. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. If they were forgiven for their sin forever, they would have no consciousness of the sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, the Day of Atonement. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And again, in verse 8 through 11, the writer of Hebrews says, previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burn offerings and offerings for your sin, did I not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to you to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that is the Levitical atoning sacri- uh, atonement, day of atonement sin, that he may establish the second, that is the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I say all this so that as we study Micah today, we as God's people will not forget that all of his words are applicable. My hope is that you, the listener, will believe what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth is passed away, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. Therefore, while we study the Old Testament, we must bring with us these two truths. First, that God's desire is for his people to be a light to the nations. That was seen in how he set up Israel in the location that he did. In Old Testament, bringing the nations through Israel, and in the New Testament, sending his people into the nations. Secondly, the law did not save. It was a tutor to bring people to the end of themselves so that they would, not, so that they would cry out for God's mercy. I don't know if you have ever taken the time, and I know a lot of people kind of joke around about uh, how dry or boring reading Leviticus is, or really it starts in chapter uh, Exodus, chapter 19, it goes all the way through Leviticus. But I'm telling you, saints, that God's desire for you to be holy, that means set apart, that is, that is written down for us to read, 
understand, be convicted by, and move towards holiness in the things of God. It was never, it has never passed away. Jesus said it did not pass away, right? His desire for us is to live a holy life, a set-apart life. Why? Not just so we can say, oh, look at how great we are, but what? That we might point people to the king, that we might be a light to the nations. Now, as we bring this thing, now as we bring these things with us, let us, uh, let's look at Micah. He was a prophet, sent to the, he was sent to the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied to the nation of Judah approximately from 740 to 688 B.C. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the northern kingdom of Israel was judged and exiled uh, by God through Assyria in 722. Later on, we see that the southern kingdom, Judah, they didn't listen to Micah. They didn't live, listen to Isaiah. They're judged, and they are exiled uh, into Babylon. Now, uh, Micah, with his contemporary Isaiah, uh, prophesied to the southern kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. As it, as it is stated in chapter 1 of his book, uh, much like our nation today, what we find as we study Israel in this time, it was a very profitable nation. It was a rich nation. And as we look at that slide or think of that slide, all of the trades, the spice trades, the food, the, everything had to come through the choke point of, uh, of Israel. And therefore, um, it gave them opportunity to be righteous, but they weren't. They chose to be wicked. So another thing that uh, we need to know about what's going on in the time is not only do they prosper financially, but they felt like they were prospering religiously. Much like today, we think uh, as we get more Unitarianism, you know what I mean by that statement? It's, it's we accept everybody's religion and everything's okay and that we're evolving to be a, a better people. That's the same thing that was going on during uh, Micah and Isaiah's time. And uh, we're going to find out here, and as we do find out, God judges that and exiles them into Babylon. Uh, I said earlier that uh, during Micah's uh, prophesying, King Ahaz uh, was on the throne. King Ahaz had stooped to the depths of humanity by offering his own child in the fire to appease the god Molech. So what do we have here? We have a religious people that are going through the motions. They're still worshiping Yahweh. They're still uh, uh, coming under the Levitical law in their sacrifices, but yet they're going to add to all these other things to assimilate the Canaanite nations, and they're going to sacrifice children as offerings. So there are three oracles to be aware of in the book. The first starts with, Hear all you peoples, and is recognized as impending judgment and future restoration. The second starts with, Hear, O you heads of Jacob, and is recognized as an indictment of Israel's leaders and Israel's future hope. The third, and where we find ourselves today, the message starts with, Hear now what the Lord says, and is recognized as God's lawsuit with Israel in the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. So it's important for us as we look at the verse to understand what was God bringing, what was the indictment that he was bringing? What, what is it that he's going to bring judgment for? Well, he tells us right there in, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. You can read along with me. 
Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And again in chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie and wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, they do it with both hands. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. We get a very clear picture here, saints, that what appeared to be on the outside as prosperous was on the inside wicked. And God was in his mercy sending the prophets to warn the nation to repent. So you get the picture. They were gaining wealth through wicked means and God was not going to have it. The law starting in in 1 and ending in 8 or the lawsuit starting in one, ending in eight, is one of the most succinct wrap-ups of God's heart for his people. Verse 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The parallel verse, time and people, are being spoken by Isaiah. It's in chapter... 1 verses 16 through 17 listen to what the Lord says wash yourselves make yourselves clean put away evil put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice rebuke the oppressor defend the fatherless plead for the widow so we find ourselves in this verse what does it mean to do justice Notice that the verse does not say preach justice or talk about justice. It says to do it. That is an active command to get involved. We're not to talk about it. We'll just become religious, hypocrites. A few months ago, maybe a few weeks ago, I uh, received a, a letter in the mail that I wasn't expecting. And it's an interesting thing to me that kids don't have a problem with doing justice. Now, yeah, there's, I, that's probably not a great blanket statement, but generally what I'm saying is that they know right from wrong. They do the right things when the right things need to be done. It's only as adults it seems like we start to justify, uh, we start to justify why we don't do the wrong thing or the right things. And things get cloudy, they get gray, and, uh, and it shouldn't be so. With God, right is right. Wrong is wrong. He's clearly proclaimed 
how we're supposed to live our life, our lives in front of others. So I'll read this letter that I got. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Picard, uh, English is not the first language, uh, these folks that wrote the letter, so I'm going to read it as it was written. Thank you for raising such a nice, gentle guy. With your help, we will like to please thank Matthew for standing up for Helisa at the science fair. Helisa told us that some boys were being rude and disrespectful to her. She said that she didn't that he didn't waste any time jumping in and putting the boys in their places. Helisa felt very protected in an uncomfortable situation and he helped her out a lot. As her parents, we thank him for seeing a problem and doing what was right to help Helisa. This says a lot about his high character and good spirit. We appreciate and are very thankful for Matthew and his parent. There's something about kids that just recognize wrong's wrong. Do something about it. Do justly, God's word says. Another example of seeking justice is found in the form of the fight against the killing of our unborn in this very nation. Modern-day theologian and pastor John Piper says this in his book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He, writ that, he had written that book to other pastors to uh, encourage other pastors and leaders to not act like professionals, but to be involved. So I think it, it, it says a lot that he says this. Here we go. I preach on the horrific sin and injustice of abortion and on the glory of the cause of life at least once a year in our church. I try to encourage the Sanctity of Human Life task force in our church in other ways. I call our people to dream of ways of being sacrificially involved in the pro-life efforts to make abortion unthinkable in our country. I glorify adoption and fan the flames of its spread in our church. I offer precious blood-bought forgiveness and hope to all the women and men in the congregation who have experienced this tragedy. I speak and pray at pro-life gatherings outside abortion clinics and support crisis pregnancy centers with my presence and my money. In past, I have joined peaceful protests and been arrested numerous times and spent one night in jail. I have made my case for life before angry crowds and before judges and over lunch with an abortionist. If you are a follower of Christ, let me ask you, are you taking every top opportunity to do justice to those around you? Note that justice is not just to those in the community of faith, but to the foreigner. God's love on display to the nations is and always has been his plan. Love mercy. Notice that it does not say have mercy, but says love mercy. The word love here denotes a covenantal love. Be passionately a love, passionately entangled with, passionate as, as you would be married to it. Love, mercy. When I think of mercy, my mind goes immediately to God's mercy that was extended toward us in Christ Jesus. As we spoke earlier, God had always made a way to forgive the sins of his people. The chosen priest would enter the Holy of Holies to burn incense and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat at the nation's most holy of holidays, the Day of Atonement. God loves mercy. Far too often as a people, 
and especially as believers, we get offended by the sin of our brothers, whether it's against us or not. We don't love mercy. I want to share a, a testimony of mine. It's a personal testimony. I've written it out, so I apologize for just reading through it, but sometimes they're hard to get through. There was a time during my walk with the Lord that I was in bondage to sexual sin. I was in church leadership, not here at LVC. I confessed the sin and was in dire need of restoration to God. Instead of restoration, I was delegitimized by others and falsely represented within the church network. Needlessly to say, this destroyed my heart. My, my wife and I left the church that we had helped to plant and we would not return to church for a year and a half. During that time, I built my case and I meditated on it day and night. I had done everything correct. I had confessed my sin and I had proof that my accusers had misrepresented me behind the closed doors. I wanted justice. I wanted to tell my side of the story, and I wanted others to confess their sins as I had confessed mine. One day, toward the end of this trial, I had found myself meditating on the details of how they had mistreated me. The weight of unforgiveness was pulling me down, and the Lord spoke to me in a quiet voice. He said something like this, Carl, you want man's justice, but I serve justice with mercy. I instantly knew that even though I had the facts right, I had no, I had no right as a believer to not extend the mercy of God to others, regardless of whether I was right or wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are a follower of Christ, let me ask you, are you taking every opportunity to love mercy? Note that mercy is not just to those in the community of faith, but to the foreigner and the outsider. God's love on display to the nations is and always has been his plan. Walk humbly with your God. The word walk in the Hebrew literally means to live in a certain way. Uh, but the Hebrew word for humility is not the word used here and described as humbly. Um, most, uh, most scholars believe that it certainly isn't humbly. The NIRV translates this verse this way. People of Israel, the Lord has shown you what is good. He has told you what he requires of you. You must treat people fairly. You must love others faithfully. You must be careful to live the way your God wants you to. To live the way your God wants you to. This idea, church, it's called cheap grace. That God comes down, he reaches in, and, and he changes your heart. And then you just go about living the way you want to live. There is nothing from the front of this book to the back of this book that would justify you in doing so. Are you saved? Maybe so. God's desire is not for you to wallow in sin and be in love with His grace. It is a common misconception 
in today's church to think that God does not intend for you to live by these principles. That you can be saved from sin and not have the expectation of living a holy or a set-apart life. These principles never saved you from sin or paid the atonement for sin. They were commands by God's people or commands by God to his people as a tool to reach the nations with the message of the one true God. In other words, live in such a way that when people observe your life, it gives them reason to seek after our God. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but be, be aware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. The principle here is that we should live in such a way that it attracts people to the grace of God. If you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you, are you taking every opportunity to walk humbly with your God? Note that walking humbly is not just toward those in the community of faith, but to the foreigner and to the outsider. God's love on display to the nations is and always has been his plan. Here are some New Testament examples of this being taught. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe and the mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Right here, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, let's pay the tithe, without leaving the others, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, undone. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2.12, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has complained against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. How about justice? Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. He desires to come and follow after Jesus. He's followed the law his whole life, does not say that he is not saved. Jesus encourages him, if he wants to be perfect, to do this. If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Galatians 2, 9 through 10, when Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right, the, the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only we, re, we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Believer, can I ask you today, are you eager to remember the poor? Or do we just look towards the next thing that we want and go after it? I'll share the story. Um, in 1998, shortly after I was saved, I went on a short-term mission trip to Mexico. And uh, it's kind of central Mexico, north and east of uh, Mexico City. And one of the things that really stuck out to me about this missionary that we were going to partner with was that he would not pass a poor person on the street. He kept money in his pocket, and everyone that begged, he dropped something in there. And I remember we were walking along one day, and he turned around to me, and he said, you give some money. 
And I was shocked. Remember the poor. Be eager to do so. How about mercy? John 13, 32. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you, lo- if you have love for one another. Uh, pastor was going through uh, John over the last few months, and it never hit me the way it hit me this time because I realized as we read this in context, the weight of what was being said here. Jesus had just turned to Judas, who was, si- who was sitting right at the place of respect at the table, and he gives him right, a piece of bread, a friendship. It's a, play- a thing of honor and tells him to go and do what you do quickly. And it's just after Jesus leaves that he says this. Can you imagine? The greatest betrayal of all mankind. And Jesus says, love the way that I loved him. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Believer, can I ask you, do you love mercy? Do you love to extend it? Or do you revel in being bitter and angry towards those in your lives? Here's some New Testament verses for walking humbly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see the New Testament saint, you see New Testament saint, the only shift from the old covenant to the new is that the last sacrifice for the atonement of sin took place in April 33 AD when God became a man and took our deserved punishment to the cross and shed his blood for us. God still calls us to be a light to the nations and empower us and empowers us with the Spirit to do so. I pray that today, as we consider these verses, that you would consider doing justly, loving mercy, and walking it out faithfully with your God. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I come to you today, Lord, and I can't teach your word without myself being convicted of these things, Lord, seeking justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you. Lord, I pray today is that we consider these things, that we don't ignore your Old Testament, that we see your heart, and it's always been to reach the nations, Lord, whether you brought them to you or you send us to them, Lord, it's your heart that we live a holy and set-apart life, Lord, not because we need salvation, Lord, but because you gave us salvation. Lord, I pray today is if there's anyone here that is unsaved, Lord, that, uh, Lord, there's no accidents. As much as we think we made a decision to come to church, Lord, you, you set our path. 
You direct our steps. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not accepted you for the atoning sin, that they would do that today, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. It convicts us, it sharpens us, it pierces us. It challenges us to live a life, Lord, that's worthy of being called a Christian. Lord, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.